0: Good evening. We have another show devoted to Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine, but we're going to focus more today than we have in previous episodes on the effect this is having in Britain and especially British policy in particular in reference to refugees. I will be starting the show with a big picture piece about my concerns that I think the media seem sometimes a little bit too keen on this war. I think they seem too blasé about potential escalation and a bit more than they should do. I'm joined all evening. I'm delighted to be joined all evening by Dalia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dalia?
1: I'm doing well, Michael. How are you doing?
0: I am doing okay. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a stressful time. Horrible images coming from Ukraine today, but we've got a lot to cover in tonight's show. I'm looking forward to it. When Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine, he expected immediate victory. He wagered that Russian troops would easily overwhelm their Ukrainian counterparts, that Russia would be welcomed as liberators, and that the Zelensky government would fall within two days of fighting. In fact, the Russian army is taking heavy losses. Opinion in Ukraine has hardened against Russia after the shelling of schools and hospitals, and the Zelensky government can count on unprecedented support, both inside and outside the country. All this is to say, Putin's war isn't just criminal, even on his own terms, it's proved to be a catastrophic mistake. What follows from that fact is complex, though. While it might be a relief to see a dictator not get his way, a mistaken war can also be a long and deadly one. Just look at Iraq. And so the Ukrainians now face a difficult choice. Sensing Putin's weakness should they fight until the end, or expecting a desperate Russia to lash out with ever more destructive weaponry should they try and strike a deal. On the latter front, it's at least possible that Putin will be more amenable to compromise now that his initial assumptions about the overwhelming strength of Russia's army have been shattered. And there are already some signs of a climb down. At the start of the war, Putin encouraged the Ukrainian army to overthrow their government who he characterized as drug addicts and Nazis. Today, a spokesperson for the Russian foreign ministry said regime change was never their intention. And on Russia's current thinking, a piece in the Jerusalem Post is particularly interesting. It's based on sources privy to details of a meeting between Putin and Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Zelensky can fortify Ukraine's independence but will have to pay a heavy price, the sources said. Assumptions are that he will be forced to give up the contested Donbass region, officially recognise the pro-Russian dissidents in Ukraine, pledge that Ukraine will not join NATO, shrink his army and declare neutrality. If he declines the proposal, the outcome may be terrible. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of Ukrainians will die. And there is a high probability that his country will completely lose its independence. Those would be incredibly painful conditions to swallow. Ukraine, for very good reason, doesn't trust its neighbour. Neutrality and a smaller army are not attractive propositions for a country currently subject to an illegal invasion. But as the article suggests, the alternative could be worse. In an ABC interview on Tuesday, Zelensky was asked to respond to Russia's offer.
2: Mr. President, I wanted to get your reaction to what the Kremlin announced just a short time ago. They called these conditions to end this war. They said you must change your constitution to give up your wishes uh, to join NATO, that you uh, should recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and that you recognize the independence of those two Russian separatist regions in the East. Are you willing to go along with all three of those conditions? What is your message to Vladimir Putin right now?
3: First, I'm ready for a dialogue. Uh, we're not ready for the uh, capital, uh, capitulation because it's not me. This is about the people who um, elected me. Regarding NATO, I am have... I have cooled down regarding this question a long time ago uh, there, after we understood that Russia is not pre- that NATO is not prepared to accept Ukraine the alliance is uh, afraid of controversial things and uh, confrontation with Russia. I never wanted to be a country which is begging something on its knees and we are not going to, to be that country and I don't want to be that
0: president. That sounded like Zelensky was pretty willing to compromise on NATO. Indeed, you could read Zelensky as preparing the Ukrainian population for a future climb down. We won't join NATO, but they were useless anyway. But the host wasn't satisfied with that conciliatory answer, so he tried again. When the Kremlin says these three conditions to end
2: the war, that you must give up on joining NATO, recognize Crimea as part of Russia, and recognize the independence of those two separatist regions in the east, to Vladimir Putin, who will get this message from you, you say it's a non-starter not willing
0: to those three conditions right now? No, the question is less neutral. When he asked the question straight, he got a conciliatory answer. Now he's saying, to Vladimir Putin, who might be watching right now, do you say, screw your conditions? But this isn't a build-up to a wrestling match. This is people's lives on the line. Let's go back to Zelensky's
2: answer. I'm
3: talking about security guarantees. I think that items regarding temporary occupied territories and uh, unrecognized republics that have not been recognized by anyone but Russia, these pseudo-republics. But we can discuss and find a compromise on how these territories will live on. What is important uh, to me is how the people in those territories are going to live who want to be part of Ukraine, who in Ukraine will say that they want to have them in. So the question is more difficult than simply acknowledging them. This is another ultimatum, and we are not prepared for ultimatums. What needs to be done is for President Putin to start talking, start the dialogue, instead of living in the informational bubble without oxygen. I think that's where he is. He is in this bubble. He's getting this information, and you don't know how realistic that information is that he's getting. I think it's a bit like in the smoke and mirror situation. Again, that was a much more
0: conciliatory answer than what the host appeared to be angling for. Zelensky didn't say the demands were a non-starter like the host asked. In fact, he suggested the future of Donetsk and Luhansk could be up for debate, and he didn't even mention Crimea. Might he have accepted, like most experts believe, that Ukraine is never getting it back? Of course, whatever the Ukrainians do or don't agree with the Russians, it's a matter for the Ukrainians. It's not for me to say whether they should agree to demands made at gunpoint or whether they should continue and fight. But I do worry some commentators outside Ukraine are more interested in punishing Russia and making an example of them than protecting lives. Referring to America's refusal to confront Russia's military directly, New Statesman columnist Bruno Mackay said at this point, Given the messages coming from Washington, the only reason China does not invade Taiwan is it does not want to. China declares an air exclusion area, controls the air. Every expert starts screaming any attempt to protect Taiwan's airspace would mean nuclear war with China. Game over. Now, I just don't get this. Mackay's implication is that unless American planes shoot Russian ones out of the sky, a green light has been given for other nuclear powers to attack smaller neighbours over which they have designs. But that ignores all the costs Russia is facing without a hot war with NATO. Russia's economy is crippled, its military is drained, and their only option is to raise cities to the ground or occupy a people that hate them. It's not an example China, or anyone rational, would follow. We should also hear talk about sanctions, because these are the main costs which is currently being imposed on Russia, as i suggested. And I, of course, as I've said on this show, I do think sanctions in this instance, they're not always legitimate. In this instance, they are. Russia mounted a war of aggression. It deserves a response. But the attitude of some has also got me concerned. At the start of the war, the I, paper columnist and host of Romaniacs, Ian Dunt, said, Western sanctions against Russia must be devastating. Nothing else is acceptable. And that does seem to be the approach the West have taken since then. Central bank assets are frozen. Virtually all international firms have fled the country and sanctions are now endangering lives. Our guest from Monday's show, Anton Barbashin, said, Russian pharmacy is where sanctions would be felt the worst and very soon. Pharmacy producers warn that 80 to 85% of Russian drugs are produced with foreign compounds. EU supplies are gone. Supplies from China and India are affected by sanctions. Contracts being drawn, etc. Again, and I should be clear, Putin is to blame more than anyone else for these sanctions. He started a war in Ukraine and his airstrikes are killing way more people than this round of sanctions will. But policy shouldn't just be about righteousness. It should be about producing desired effects. And a recent article about sanctions leveled on Japan shows how what might seem like a sensible policy can dramatically backfire. In the National Security Journal, War on the Rocks, Eric Sand and Suzanne Freeman write, in August 1941, excrement was piling up in Tokyo, literally. Most of the city lacked a sewer system and human waste had to be regularly trucked away from homes. In late July, the United States had frozen Japanese assets and embargoed oil sales to Japan to oppose the Japanese war in China. There was no longer enough fuel for the motor vehicles that normally transported the sewage out of the city, and bicycle drawn carts could not keep up with demand. Residents complained loudly. The American sanctions created more than just sewage problems, and Japanese leaders came to believe they would lose power if they did nothing. They also believed they would lose power if they abandoned the war in China. As a result, Tokyo expanded the war and attacked Pearl Harbor. Critically, the Japanese cabinet chose to attack the United States even after it received analysis which reached the unequivocal conclusion that war with the United States was unwinnable. So, following an aggressive war against China, the US put heavy sanctions on Japan. But the effect of that wasn't that Japan pulled out of China, it was that they declared war on the United States And significantly, that was even when they knew it was a war they would lose. So are there parallels here? As we keep being told, Russia's military is already overstretched in Ukraine. They aren't about to launch a war against the UK or America. But that doesn't mean they don't have potential means to escalate. We talked on the show before about the dangers of nuclear war. Laurie Garrett, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist on pandemics, had a worrying tweet about another potential threat. I'm in a background meeting now where military experts say Putin may use chemical weapons in Ukraine. They point to a widespread disinfo campaign claiming there are US-run labs all over Ukraine, which will be cited as Putin claims a US or Ukraine-released gases, not Russia. Scary. Is this intelligence accurate? I honestly have no idea. But to my mind, the overwhelming drive in both our press and politics to punish Putin above all else seems incredibly risky, yes. Putin is a war criminal who deserves whatever is coming to him. But this isn't an action movie. If the baddie is driven to act in an ever more brutal and irresponsible fashion, that's not just a dramatic interlude before he ultimately falls. It's people's livelihoods and people's lives. So let's be serious about this. This is a war. It's not cosplay. It's not an action movie. Dahlia, what's your, what's your take on this?
1: Well, I obviously, I can't speak. To what's happening in the Ukrainian media? Uh, it's of course a, a fundamentally different context to the one that we are in. What I can do, though, is is talk about how this is playing out in the media in Britain, which is not only a place that is not that would not be impacted by civil war in Ukraine, has a long history of beating the war drum, and in in previous parts of our history of of escalating violence or encouraging narratives that that do escalate violence and who have failed to ask the kinds of questions that could have prevented swathes of of unnecessary deaths and and destabilization. You know, I'm of course talking about the wars in in Iraq and Afghanistan where the journalists who were complicit in beating those war drums uh, have never and will never face uh, accountability for their role in that war and it, it speaks partly to this kind of orientalist logic that many of these journalists are, are marinated in sort of via their oxbridge education etc where they are very very responsive and quick to reproduce this framework of you know this eastern country um is evil this country is corrupt and we must change that and because these countries only understand violence. The only way that we can do that, the only way that we can change it is through overwhelming violence. That's a a hypnotizing and familiar trope that we've seen come to very dramatic ends in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And I think what's particularly egregious here is that Ukraine is essentially being talked about in this country's media, as a stick to beat Putin with, right? As you say, it's it's a way of of teaching him a lesson, and and most significantly, of demonstrating the strength and power of the West. And this is how so-called cold wars have always played out. They're always somewhat cold in the states that are propagating them, but in the proxy states that become pieces on a chessboard in these wars, the war is very hot. So the kind of the phrase cold war is kind of a misnomer there. And that makes those states vulnerable and very disposable in that broader clash of civilizations narrative. And I think what we're seeing as a result of that in the media right now is not a genuine concern for how do we de-escalate the violence that is being experienced by Ukrainians right now, and how do we prevent explosions of violence like this happening in the future, but it's rather an attempt to consolidate an internal narrative of the West which has been somewhat challenged in recent years. You know, it's been challenged domestically and internationally. You know, the West being something that's conceptualized as a sort of singular and coherent force that's a kind of fixed good in a moral binary um, against the Orientalist violent backwards East. That's become insecure slightly because of things like, you know, interrogations into the colonial history of the West which destabilizes this idea that the West is always this force of, you know, philanthropic, generous, generous good in the world. And it's also being destabilized by the kind of clear, deep contradictions and inequality that is increasingly racking Western nations, particularly the US and the UK, where it becomes harder and harder to sell this sort of West as best narrative when people are struggling so hard to fulfill their basic material needs. And so the obvious and indefensible aggression that is being displayed by Putin here becomes a way through which the media is trying to silence and marginalize that kind of dissension internally. And so it becomes a kind of proxy through which an internal contradiction, in a sense, is being resolved. And so instead of the question being, how do we de-escalate this violence, um, how do we work to create a world in which war is an endemic? And in which violent authoritarians like Putin don't rise to the top, instead it's how do we use this moment to assert the overwhelming strength and power of the West? But unfortunately, that logic misses the point. It puts Ukraine at risk of further violence and it actually works to strengthen Putin domestically, which is not a good outcome for anyone, because fundamentally, the most sustainable and, and real challenges to Putin's power has to be partly um, from the Russian people themselves. And so this is where I'm seeing lessons not being learned. And I'm seeing, unfortunately, a re-entrenchment of the kinds of conditions that leads to occupation, that leads to invasion. And that's a really concerning thing, especially given the track record of many of these media institutions in quite recklessly paving the path for further war.
0: I think we're, we're on a very similar page on these things. I suppose, and I will keep doing this during these shows, just to sort of highlight the amount of uncertainty I feel about all of this. You know, is it the case that the Russian military is so on its knees that everyone in in, in the troops is about to sort of leave and desert and and putin's gonna have to give up and you know the ukrainians won't have to compromise possibly it doesn't seem that likely to me given this is a guy who really doesn't want to lose and he has nukes and chemical weapons i feel like if the conventional war goes wrong he does have means to escalate we we've seen today he's, he's bombing hospitals and bombing schools that's that's a clear escalation i mean i'm sure they'll argue in the un that this was an accident this was collateral damage but it would also make sense as a provocation Essentially, to say no, do take us seriously because we can do serious damage. Even if our convoys are getting bombed here and there, we can still cause pain. Right? That, in a way, is their negotiating tactic. It's disgusting. It's it's criminal. Well, it should not be rewarded. And this is an argument that people are often making online, which is to say there would there would be what's called like a moral hazard. If there were to be a compromise with Russia, where for example they got Crimea, which as I say, most experts agree they're going to get anyway, would that prove that by invading your neighbor you can get chunks of land? Maybe, but it would also prove that by invading your neighbor, you will completely cripple your economy. Russia's economy is not going to recover for a very long time, even if, and I I do think, you know, as part of any peace negotiations, the West should offer, if you agree to this, we will, you know, lift this sanction on your central bank or this sanction on your gas or whatever. But Russia's economy isn't going back to the place where it was because no one wants to invest in that country. No one wants to invest in that country because it's very clear that the leader is not only a a war criminal, but completely irrational. You, You can't trust what he's going to do next. So I don't feel that even if there is some sort of compromise and and Putin is allowed to walk away saving face with his population, that's then a license for anyone else to do it because he's still in a weaker position than when he entered that war. Entering this war is a complete disaster for Russia, whatever happens now. So for me, the issue is how do you maximize the independence of the Ukrainians at the end of all of this while minimizing the number of people who are killed in the meantime, tragically? Right, while this war is continuing? And as I say, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. It it might be that the Ukrainians' bargaining power will increase over the next few months as they continue this war and and the Russian economy starts to crumble and the army gets ever more depleted. It might be the opposite. It might be that actually the Ukrainian government starts to splinter. People in the West start to notice that, oh, actually there are these divisions within the Ukrainian resistance and some of them aren't as presentable as Zelensky. We've talked about this before. You have some far-right elements within that resistance. It's similar to you know, Afghanistan at the beginning. Everyone thought, oh, this resistance is brilliant. We're all behind these guys. By the end, I was like, oh, we're not sure what we did there. I'm not going to say that's going to happen with Ukraine, but I can say the leverage that Ukraine has can both rise and it can both fall. So this idea that because Putin is losing, this means they should fight till the end, which is essentially what I'm getting from lots of commentators online and sort of the tenor of of media coverage. I don't think that's necessarily right. You, you can see Putin's weakness as an opportunity to try and win this war, which I don't think will happen quickly, or you can use Putin's weakness as an opportunity to try and get a better deal than was offered in the first place. Again, as I say, another thing to emphasize, this is for the Ukrainians to decide. Zelensky, democratically elected leader, he is the legitimate person to make this decision when he is in those negotiations with the Russians. But I, I worry that we are in a media and political environment which is Bias towards escalation because it is kind of enjoying the drama of seeing Vladimir Putin fail and Vladimir Putin failing in this war which he will does not mean he will fall in Russia and it does not mean that he will kill less people in Ukraine that's what I really really want people to remember here because you can be losing a war and still kill thousands and thousands of people because you just get ever more irresponsible with the weapons you're using that's why I thought it was important to do a segment on on how I feel like we need to take a step back Be a little bit less emotional about this. Stop pretending we're in some sort of action movie where it's liberty versus autocracy and liberty must win out and actually think that there are people's lives on the line here. And a long war, even if Russia loses it, is not a good thing. Boris Johnson has bragged that 1,000 Ukrainians have been let into Britain since the start of the war in Ukraine. It all sounds very generous until you discover that Poland has let in 1.3 million Ukrainians, Hungary 200,000, and that 235,000 Ukrainian refugees have settled in non-neighboring EU states. So why has the UK's intake been so paltry? It's principally because unlike our European neighbours, we're requiring Ukrainians fleeing war to apply for visas. And with visa centres few and far between, that's pretty hard to do. We can talk you through one particular controversy which demonstrates the UK's shambolic response and it concerns the fact that multiple Ukrainians have been turned back at Calais because there's no way to apply for a visa at the port. In response to complaints of that nature, Home Secretary Priti Patel gave this reassurance to Parliament on Monday.
4: It is absolutely right that we've already had people in Calais. So let me again clarify, I've said this over the weekend, we have staff in Calais. We have support on the ground. It is wrong to say that we are just turning people back. We are absolutely not. We are supporting those that have been coming to Calais. And it's also, Mr. Speaker, important that we do not create choke points in Calais, but encourage a smooth flow of people And in particular, I can confirm that we have set up a bespoke vac en route to Calais, but away from the port because we have to prevent that surge taking place.
0: We have set up a bespoke vac, so that's a visa application centre, en route to Calais. Those are her exact words, but can we trust them? Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper couldn't quite believe it. I must
5: pick up some of the points that the Home Secretary made earlier on. She said, I can confirm that we have set up a bespoke visa application centre en route to Calais, but away from the port. Number 10 have said, I don't believe there's one there now, but we'll keep it under review. The Home Office website is still telling people to go to Paris. Journalists who are in Calais and looking for any centre that there might be are still unable to find anything and in fact all they can find is a few Home Office staff in a building with a crisp machine but no visas.
0: In response to that Patel tried to bend time itself.
5: I think, first of
4: all, the Honourable Lady um, did not hear what I said earlier on. I actually said that I can confirm we are setting up another back en route to Calais. I made that quite clear in my remarks earlier on. And I also said it would be away from the port to prevent the surge that we do not want to have taking place.
0: Now, Priti Patel did say she had set up a visa application centre. Not that she was going to. Lying clearly comes easily to some. But the more concrete question following both of those interventions was what Patel meant by saying the VAC would be away from the port. Does that mean it would be in Calais' town centre? That would certainly make sense. On Tuesday, BBC Home editor Mark Easton tried to find out. He explained what he discovered to Evan Davies.
2: Now, what about this VAC? And I, I, I mean,
0: does that exist or not?
6: The VAC does not exist yet. Um, There is a plan uh, for uh, an office in Lille. Uh, This has been confirmed to me that they are intent on finding a location in Lille. Um, But let's be clear, this is not a visa application centre. And it's not for people who are heading to Calais from uh, from Poland or from anywhere else. This is only, this was expressed to me explicitly today, this is only for people who have been to the border in Calais, been rejected for whatever reason, and then they will go to Lille. But as of now, it does not exist. Right. There is no vac in Lille or anywhere else other than in, right. in, in Paris, in the whole of France.
0: Lille, by the way, is 110 kilometres away from Calais. It's not a short walk from the port to avoid a surge. It's it's a different part of France. It's not away from the port. It's a different city. And it does get worse, as was suggested in that interview, now confirmed by Kate McCann. She delivered an update. Visa centre in Lille will be a pop-up. It will not offer appointments or walk-in access for those seeking to come to the UK. The most vulnerable cases in Calais will be taken there for biometrics, but Home Office will not publicise location and capacity will be small. Dahlia, what do you reckon? Is this incompetence, callousness, or both?
1: Whatever it is, it's the British policy that migrants have been up against for, for many, many years right now. And we, we have to remember actually that the hostile environment, the t- one of the techniques of the hostile environment, is not just about the policies themselves, it's also the, the systems and institutions and processes that were introduced as part of the hostile environment. And part of this is the introduction of a very complex, very difficult to navigate, and very ruthless matrix of bureaucracy that people have to abide by in order to seek asylum, in order to seek refuge, in often some of their most desperate and and vulnerable moments. You know, the sets of rules to enter this country as, as a migrant, including as a refugee or an asylum seeker, and especially to seek any kinds of social services, are deliberately, have been made deliberately onerous and, and difficult to navigate, especially if English is not your first language or if you don't have an immense amount of resources and support in order to, to help you navigate that system. When you see the way in which, you know, you hear one thing from the Home Secretary and then you have journalists going to find things that have been officially declared by the 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 absolute chaos of that segment, it becomes clear why many people seek unsafe paths to the UK because the the so-called legitimate processes are made deliberately opaque. It's impossible, furthermore, to to make contact with the institutions that decide your fate if they reject you. There's basically very little course for for appeal and so you know when you say is this incompetence or callousness what is called incompetence is part of the violence of the immigration system um, in this country it is part of the ideology of the the hostile environment and so I think that it's it, it's part of that, that callousness. And, you know, let's not forget, you know, during the Windrush scandal, the deportation of, of people from the Windrush generation was framed as a bureaucratic procedural error. They didn't have the right papers. We couldn't find their papers. The commun- lines of communication between the people who were facing the brunt of these policies and the people making the decisions on people's deportation status on their migration status the lines of communication were deliberately fuzzy were deliberately difficult to navigate even with all of the campaigning and and you know legal resource that was put behind that campaign you still had people who were wrongfully deported and who died before they were able to return back to the UK and so in a sense when you look at the Windrush situation we see the way in which these this onerous and deliberately opaque systems of bureaucracy are used as part and parcel of the violence of the immigration regime and you know that narrative of oh it's just procedural it's just bureaucratic allows what is essentially state violence and state abandonment to be passed off as merely procedural issues and merely procedural errors and so this is a case in the in the hostile environment it's also part of the broader austerity program you know Getting, even if you are a British citizen, getting access to things like universal credit, getting access to disability benefits are made deliberately onerous and difficult as a way of reducing the number of people who get access to them. So I think it's really important to understand, you know, the procedural as kind of, and the bureaucratic as sort of part of the way in which the state draws very sharp borders between who it does and does not help. And it's only because of increased journalistic curiosity in this case that that function of, you know, bureaucratic procedural bloatedness is actually coming to light. But this has been sort of part of the deliberate system here and part of the, the, the dysfunction of our, of our immigration system, the deliberate dysfunction of our immigration system ever since the hostile environment and even even preceding that as well.
0: The UK government response to the Ukrainian refugee crisis has been a shambles and a disgrace. Depressingly, though, it's still a lot better than how we usually treat refugees. Someone who knows a lot about how not to treat migrants is Amber Rudd. As Home Secretary, she oversaw the Tory government's malicious treatment of Windrush arrivals, and she resigned after being caught lying about it. This is Rudd, this week, speaking to Radio 4.
2: I find it absolutely baffling and really disappointing that the numbers of visas being issued are so tiny compared to other European countries. And I can only put it down to this, which is that the Home Office is looking for, I think, examples of what to copy. What has worked before? How do we put it in place? And then make sure we roll it out, as they say, when actually the correct approach is something completely different. Everything has changed since Putin invaded Ukraine. Our approach should be wholly different. We've got war in Europe. We've got refugees we need to help now who have left their countries. And you know, it's worth acknowledging on International Women's Day, women and children being targeted, women leaving with their children, needing support. And I think that somebody needs to just address with the Home Office that the, and the Home Secretary, this is not a business as usual. We need a new scheme. This is something completely different.
0: A new approach is needed. That answer is really, really incredible. This is a former Home Secretary saying the problem with the current Home Secretary is that they're copying the policies of former Home Secretaries. Rudd says that's not right because this is a completely different situation to what we've faced before and what she's faced before. But why is it different? There have been refugee crises before with just as many people being just as desperate and in just as urgent need. Why weren't refugee policies made more humane then? Rudd's reason, this is a war... In Europe, these are Europeans. Emma Barnett is conducting this interview and she's famous for supposedly asking very, very tough questions. Let's see if she picked Rudd up on any of this.
2: Isn't that somebody the same person you don't want driving you home at night? It's the Prime Minister. Well, listen, there, there, there have been schemes, or I say schemes, but I mean the, the approach to Hong Kong has been completely different and has been liberal and open and has been correct. But, but what, why do you think there's not that grip that you're talking about? Because it is now... Weeks on, actually. Yes, yes. And what we're hearing, of course, is very positive talk, but no action put in place. And I mean, politics is like this sometimes. And I think that people who are, sadly, not me, but the politicians inside are putting pressure on the Home Office and on the Prime Minister. I saw yesterday that the One Nation Caucus, led by Damien Green and supported by Jeremy Hunt, have written a punchy letter asking for attention to this. And lots of Conservative MPs, as well as obviously Labour and the opposition, are saying this is not good enough. Acknowledge that there has been a change and do it differently. Is pretty Patel good at her job? I th- listen, I'm not going to criticise her. I know how difficult that job no, is. No, because you know, I'm asking. It, no, you know, I, it, this is a very... I, I, you don't need to necessarily make it personal, but I suppose how can you not? People are concerned about who is coordinating. This. Emma, I and don't think now is the time to criticise the government individual ministers it, it, because it, I think... More, it's more when it's the time to get people out and why is that not happening? I think and the right approach to lie at the door of is, those in charge. I think the right approach is to help the Home Office do the right thing to help people who are in desperate need of support. And I hope that Priti and Liz pick up the phone to each other and try and work it out and put the priority of, the, of the, these people in need before any of their concerns about each other.
0: So that was interesting. Rudd essentially let it slip that Liz Truss and Priti Patel hate each other. But what went completely unnoticed by the BBC host and what was seen as perfectly natural was that inhumane asylum policies were fine for Syrian refugees or Iraqi refugees, by the way, refugees created by Britain's wars, but not for Ukrainians. Dahlia, what's going on here?
1: This is the face of our immigration system, of our refugee system, of our asylum system. there's nothing new about it. This is how this country operates. This is the system that we have, well, we haven't, but our state uh, leaders have chosen. And the hostility and the racism of our migration system that has been there endemically for years is becoming legible because, let's be frank, the people who are on the other end of it right now are people who don't look like the kinds of people that we are used to treating with utter contempt, that we are used to dehumanizing. These aren't the people whose, whose suffering and, and disposability we've become used to, or which has even become pathologized. You know, we aren't, and, and rightfully so, we shouldn't be, we aren't blaming the Ukrainian people for being displaced by a conflict that they did not cause yet to blame people from africa from asia and the middle east for their displacement we call them opportunists they get called bogus asylum seekers they get called you know economic migrants or whatever as a way of legitimizing the violence and the abandonment that they face and it's quite something to watch the me- the ideological acrobatics that are happening in order to shape shift that idea right now and i think what what's interesting to me is seeing what the media can do when it really puts its mind to it, how the media can change the conversation and ask different questions of politicians in a way that position refugees as people that it is our responsibility to help. How different a conversation is that to you know the crisis in the Mediterranean? I never thought that I would see politicians going to borders, to border sites like Calais and checking to see if the processes in place for immigrants and refugees would actually be in place and doing it on behalf of the refugees. I never thought I would see that before. And so what we're seeing here is a glimpse into what is possible in terms of, you know, the the public discourse around migration. And it's undeniable the racism of our immigration system and our refugee system this is not a neutral institution that is you know used for sort of logical scientific reasons it is underpinned by a racist ideology that looks to hoard britain's resources which it extracts from the rest of the world from the people who live in the parts of the world that it extracts resources from to put it simply and crudely
0: i want to go to a couple more examples of the double standards we have okay. seen um, when it comes to this particular issue, when it comes to Ukrainian refugees versus other refugees. And by the way, I'm not saying this to reduce in any way the humanity we should show to Ukrainian d- refugees that deserve our utmost absolute solidarity, but it would just be nice if the media and politicians would treat people from everywhere like they have been, well, at least discursively, as we've talked about already, the policy towards Ukrainian refugees is pretty shoddy, but discursively they are being treated as, as humans in a way that we didn't see when it came to to Syria. But looking at some double standards, we could have chosen a bunch, but there's just one example or two front pages that I want to show you that really made my jaw drop. So they're both from The Spectator. This is this week's edition. So the front page says Border fast," and you can see other European countries with signs saying Welcome, and pretty Patel holds a long bit of paper with all the different conditions someone would have to meet to get into the country. Great, good cover image, very cutting, very to the point. But it's quite the turnaround, because this was the spectator nine months ago. Priti Patel sitting by the white cliffs of Dover, turning the tide. So they're really, it's a very celebratory image of Pretty Patel looking at people who are trying to come across in a dinghy. These are quite likely people from Iraq or Syria, people fleeing wars. As I say, in the Iraqi case, this is a British war they're fleeing. And the spectator in this case, they're not particularly humanized. They're these tiny little people in a dinghy, and then you've got Pretty Patel turning the tide. You know, they, they're not even people with a tide, are they? They're a sort of geological phenomenon to be, to be pushed away. And this is the same newspaper. When it's Ukrainian refugees, quite rightly, they are criticizing the government for making people fleeing war tick all of these boxes before they can get to a country where in lots of cases they have family and friends. When it's people from Syria or Iraq, no, completely different. There... The pressure isn't on politicians to be more humane. It's not saying, "Well, why are you being so cruel to these people who have just fled war?" But then it's saying, "Oh, even if these people have fled war, why are you letting them in?" Now, Douglas Murray has written his whole book, which is to say, you know, Muslims are taking over Europe. We shouldn't be letting in. We shouldn't be letting them in because they're going to destroy the continent from the inside out. Fifth column kind of thing. Really, really disgusting. That was the front page of the Spectator. I suppose there's two things to say beyond this being sort of hypocritical and racist, essentially. It is also the case that the reason why the Conservatives are slow off the mark when it comes to Ukrainians is because they're so used to a situation where they do have to be super tough to refugees. This this must be the first time in my lifetime where the media and sort of the dominant political narrative has been, why aren't you being nicer to refugees? So you can see why they've been taken by surprise. This this is new. Labour have been critical of the Tories' shoddy refugee policy towards Ukraine, but they're in danger of missing the point. Speaking to Sky News, this was Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper.
5: We're calling for emergency visas to be issued, a much simpler, faster process where you can do the biometrics and security checks on the spot and then have an emergency visa without people having to fill in 14 pages of forms, without people having to struggle to kind of upload documents while they're in the back of a car, fleeing, trying to get to safety. Because I think what we've seen is just really shambolic and it's not fair on people who have already fled a war zone. People who have already endured so much, had to leave behind so much and have fled a Russian bombardment, they should be able to get to safety and join family. And that's what really this is about.
0: I bet Cooper sounded reasonable there. She sounded sympathetic. But there was a glaring problem with what she said. The, the UK isn't just failing Ukrainians because we're processing visas too slowly. It's not just because we're incompetent, even though we are. We're failing Ukrainians by requiring them to apply for visas in the first place. All other countries in in Europe, the rest of Europe, has waived the need for visas from people who are fleeing Ukraine. People can apply for status once they're inside the country in which they want to settle instead of having to do it before they get there. That makes a lot of sense. These are people fleeing war. Very difficult to ask them to fill in all the forms beforehand before they arrive in Britain. It'd be much easier to do that when they're in the place where they want to get to, when they're with friends, when they're with family. That's the necessary move the Tories are refusing to make, and that's what Labour are refusing to call for. Let's take a look at some more of that interview.
3: And the concern against that from the government is that it may well let in people who are not actually fleeing violence. They're trying to get into Britain for nefarious reasons.
5: You can do the biometric and security checks on the spot. The problem with the what the government's done is, first of all, they've not had the proper centres in place. They've not set up emergency centres in order to be able to do biometrics or security checks. They've not done the proper planning to look at whether they could use the same technology that they used for Hong Kong so that you can do a lot of those checks online online. And then they've made it really complicated. So they're sort of picking and choosing between families rather than just saying everybody should be able to come to join family or friends. We know most people want to stay in Poland or in Hungary or close to Ukraine and close to home. But those who've got family or friends are reaching out to people who can look after them. And instead, they're having to, to meet all kinds of technical requirements rather than just having a very simple system in place. So this could be done much, much faster. We just shouldn't have these delays. We should have something proper in place that can let families reunite at such an awful time.
0: It's worth saying, to be fair, Labour's policy is better than the Conservatives on this one. The Conservatives are giving visas to Ukrainians if they have friends or family in the country or if they get sponsored by an organisation. The idea that people who are fleeing war are going to find an organisation to sponsor them, I find, you know, particularly offensive. But Labour's policy is that any Ukrainian can get a visa. So it it is an improvement. But the problem is that unlike all of these other European countries, many of them with more right-wing governments than... And the Labour Party has, we won't waive visas. We won't waive visas essentially for the same reason the Conservative Party are, are saying they won't waive visas, which is that apparently it's a security risk. Now you do have to ask, why, if this isn't a big enough security risk to worry Germany, France, Hungary, Spain? What is it about Britain that means that we are so vulnerable to, I mean, I suppose the security risk here, if, if you're saying we'll give a visa to any Ukrainian, is, is someone who's not a Ukrainian saying they are? and then them being dangerous somehow, with a fake passport. I mean, it's slightly difficult to work out what exactly the risk is here. But in any case, if this is a risk that, that Germany can deal with, that France can deal with, as I've been talking about on previous shows, Angela Merkel during the Syrian migrant crisis, and yes, people can have solidarity towards non-white people, even if they're European. That was the German policy at the time, right? Her statement then was, we're a strong country, we can manage. We're a strong country, we can manage. The British line in all of these situations when international solidarity is, is required when it comes to migration is to say, we are not going to make any compromises because, goddamn, this is a vulnerable society. And if we let in a single person with nefarious motives, the whole thing is going to collapse. It's very, very pathetic. Maybe Putin does send someone with a fake Ukrainian passport, blah, 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 The Germans have an intelligence system that can deal with it. Do we not? Or what is it about, about Britain that means that we have to make migrants in desperate situations? go through all of these hoops before they can come to Britain and, and, and find safety. What is it about us? I don't get it. That's the question that should be put to them. The Ukrainian ambassador to the UK has been speaking to the Home Affairs Select Committee, and there are a couple of notable bits. First, on Britain's failure to provide refuge to Ukrainians, he said the trouble with our border regime was nothing new.
6: Visa centers is the, with the issue we had to sit with you a long, long, long time ago, even before the war. You used to produce visas in Ukraine and Kyiv, which allowed all Ukrainians to get, but that's biggest by territory nation in Europe. So even traveling to one particular place was hassle already. Then you moved it to Poland years ago. It was much more difficult to get to Poland. Then you moved it all the way to to these islands. You You know, to process visas, it was always bureaucratic hassles. I have to tell you that even when I was coming here as ambassador, I got my visa on time, although I was already like, approved by your government half a year, my wife didn't have it. So we, even simple things like that, and bureauc- bureaucracy is so tough. And when we reached the agreement of visa-free regime with Europeans, which worked quite beautifully for almost 10 years, we never managed to open the, this particular nation. I know that you have strict immigration policies, but all Europeans also had them the at same, the same time. And we opened up the EUO citizens in 2005.
0: That's pretty wild. This is a guy who is the official representative of Ukraine. He has very high status. I mean, he's clearly, I imagine, very good at paperwork, great English. And even he can't work out how to get his wife a visa. How is anyone else supposed to manage this system? The next bit that was interesting was a story that's been talked about a lot over the past two weeks. That's the problem people of colour have experienced when fleeing Ukraine. Diane Abbott asked the ambassador to comment on the issue. This is what he said.
2: I have noticed looking at um, film and clips online and so on, that there are circumstances in which black people and Syrian people have been pushed off trains and literally put to the back of the queue and um, some
1: of us are a little bit concerned about that. Have you any comment to make about that?
6: Thank you for raising. This has been raised many times and I'm, I'm quite happy to, to meet this question straightforward. Uh, Ukrainians, yes, Ukrainians, is very homogenic society. We don't have many people of different races on the streets for the many different reasons we're not going to discuss. And foreigners are sticking out of the, out of the crowd. It doesn't mean that we are racist. It's just the way that people understand. But what you describe in the situations, and I was checking myself because we don't want it to happen that's Ukrainians were trying to allow foreigners to come out first. And that's all the problems when you have to prioritize young people who has a passport, which is not visible that somebody has a foreign passport to be prioritized against women and children of Ukrainian citizenship who are trying to get in the same trains. So the police have to do much better, better job explaining people why these young males of the Ukrainians are splitting from their families and staying behind and somebody else is leaving. That's where people to people uh, conflicts can come. So uh, difficult to explain to why the foreigners have to leave right now, even they are from the neighboring nation right right here, right away. We're not talking about different races in most of the cases, different face or anything. We're just trying to, to, you know, to somehow, I don't know, maybe we'll have to gather them, the foreigners in some other places so they won't be visible and won't be conflicts with Ukrainians trying fl- to flee the same direction, this is something have to be have to be taken care of, and we will, we will be doing it.
0: So, to avoid racist abuse, perhaps non-Ukrainians of color specifically should be segregated. Not a brilliant answer. I also didn't find the the first part of that answer particularly convincing because the videos we've been seeing of 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 people of color not being let on trains, that wasn't you know people getting angry because they were being let on trains when there was a queue of Ukrainians behind them. That was they were being told they couldn't get on the train, right? So they were being pushed to the back of the queue. It wasn't that people were annoyed that they were at the front of the queue. Dalia, what was your take on on that answer from the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK?
1: I mean, it's it's very uncomfortable to watch, isn't it? And I think what it speaks to is the fact that when you have a refugee crisis, a crisis of displacement, it is the marginalised who will bear the brunt of that. The marginalised... Um, that could be the racially marginalised. It could people marginalised on the basis of their sexuality. People marginalised on the basis of their class. You know, we've talked about the onerous bureaucracy that you know asylum and refugee systems have in Britain. You know, that inevitably means that people with better connections, people with more resources, with access to legal support, with you know the technological resources, are going to be more able to navigate that than people who are working class and also you know people with disabilities are also tend to be marginalized and, and bear the brunt of refugee crises and we are seeing that play out in real time so i think it's really important you know given a what what the ukrainian crisis is teaching us about what happens during these moments of displacement and also what it's teaching us about you know the refugee system here the immigration system here we need to really use this moment in order to to highlight the endemic brutality and the uh, inability of Britain in particular to deal with displacement humanely. And um, this becomes incredibly important. This inequality, the brutality of the refugee system has come to bear when people who are not traditionally seen to be people that are affected by displacement crises are being impacted. And we're seeing it in that differential treatment of Ukrainian refugees here versus refugees from other parts of the world. Although it's important to notice that that those differential levels of empathy has not necessarily yet translated into a better policy, but empathy is a start. But the demand has to be that not only do we extend a more humane refugees and immigration system to Ukrainians, but the, the starting point when it comes to displacement, when it comes to refugee crisis cannot be, who do we not let in? It has to be, how do we as a world collaborate with one another to ensure that any displaced person is able to settle somewhere that is safe and suitable for them? Whether it means that, you know, there are people in a particular country or that they can stay with or that they can be in community with, or whether it's because they speak the language whatever the reason is. And that rehauling of our immigration system has to happen not only in a way that is provoked by this crisis, but in anticipation of future crises of displacement that we know are coming. You know, we can't sit here and act like the climate-related displacement is going to take us by surprise. We have known for many, many years that climate-linked displacement is Is happening and it is only going to get worse. And that is a crisis that has disproportionately been driven by countries in the EU and in North America. And furthermore, displacing forces like the ongoing supporting of the for profit arms industry. This is also a displacing force. So, rehauling the way that we approach issues of displacement is absolutely integral. And this should be a lesson to us, not only of how do we create safe and accessible passages of migration, but how do we actually treat people better when they're actually here? Because let's not forget, we are not just brutal and callous at the border towards refugees and immigrants in general. We're callous inside the border as well. If you are a refugee in this country or an asylum seeker, you get five pounds a day to live on. If you're pregnant, you get an extra couple of pounds on top of that. So when you're in that when those things are starting to come to light and are starting to be seen for what they are unfortunately because it's happening to people that are viewed slightly differentially to people who have who are tradition who have conventionally been displaced but whatever the reason this moment needs to be used in order to create a better system going forward because this is not the last we're going to see um, and it's not the last we've seen of of a displacement crisis and it, it's We can sit and think about that. what is causing this inequality, and absolutely that analysis has to be there. But from a strategic position, we have to see how we can use this moment where journalist eyes are actually on what does it mean to be a refugee in this country to dramatically overhaul that system. And that's why, you know, in the previous segment, Yvette Cooper's response was so disappointing, because it just feels like, the policy of the Labour Party is to cripple the political imagination of the British people, that she couldn't even use this moment to draw a broader point on what the hostile environment has done to our ability to fulfil our responsibility to displaced people, and particularly people who are displaced as a result of foreign policy uh, and financial policy perpetuated by the British state.
0: Current news events don't give us much opportunity to show you entertaining clips, but we do have one for you here. This is the Ukrainian ambassador speaking to the UN. He's responding to a tweet from the Russian foreign
6: ministry. Those who posted today this text, Foreign Minister Lavrov, the goal of Russia's special military operation is to stop any war that could take place on Ukrainian territory or that could start from there. Russian embassy in London, retweeted by the Russian foreign ministry. Let me remind the Russian diplomats that in London, in case of need for mental help, you can dial NHS line 111.
0: I've watched that so many times since I first saw it. Obviously, none of them as good as the first time because I did not see that coming at the end. And obviously, every other time you watch it, you know that it's coming, but still amazing. A few things I've seen said about this is that one, you know, if you call 111, you're probably going to be there for a while. The Tories cut the staff on that service. You can be, be, you know, stuck on hold for ages. Often, they just tell you, look on, you know, the NHS website. Also, you know, if Sergey Lavrov were to try and get mental health treatment on the NHS, I mean, that would take... A couple of years i think you know we could do a lot of damage before that came to pass let's wrap up there um thanks to dahlia gabriel for joining me tonight thank you so much for watching we'll be back on friday at 7 p.m you've been watching Tiski sour on navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navarra media go to navaramediacom support